Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. continuing our series on a closer look at 12 Ordinary Men. And I have so much to share with you that I really am not going to do a whole lot of review because we've just got a whole lot (laughs) that we have to get into. Last week we started to talk about Andrew, which was just really nice because we spent so much time talking about the rock, Peter. Um, And we discussed the fact that Andrew was in fact already a devout man. Um, you know, before he even met Jesus, because he was one of the disciples of whom? John the Baptist. So he already had a heart, you could say, for just wanting, you know, to do what was right. Um, Now, the interesting thing, and always remember this about Andrew, he was actually the first person to meet Jesus as the Christ. So that always kind of sets him apart and makes him extra special to me, and to everybody for that matter. Andrew's personal encounter with Jesus took place a few months after Jesus's baptism. Turn with me to John's Gospel, and we're going to look at the first chapter, verses 29 through 34. So now we're right up to snuff. We're no more into any review, because we didn't do this last week. So John, the first chapter, verses 29 through 34, and let me know when you are there. Okay, great. So I'm going to share it with you out of, now is anybody else there? (laughs) Yes? Okay, great. No? Okay, good. All right. I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. And starting with verse 29, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me. Now I'm going to pause here. Who's speaking here is John the Baptist. Okay, good, just to make it clear. So picking it up in verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after he comes, a man who has a higher rank, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I and has priority over me, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I came baptizing in water so that he would be publicly revealed to Israel. John gave further evidence testifying officially for the record with validity and relevance, saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this one is he who baptized baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have actually seen that happen, and my testimony is that this is the Son of God. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus were related through their mothers, which is really kind of interesting. Elizabeth and Mary were actually, some scripture says they were relatives, other scripture says that they were actually cousins, which I think is really kind of uh, Interesting. So, and, and we're going to see later on if I get to that point. Well, I'm going to show you the timeline of how some people 
connect to other people that you wouldn't necessarily have put together, which I find very interesting. Now, if we look at this and we look at it and the message, it says, the very next day, John, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and yelled out, here he is, God's Passover lamb. He forgives the sins of the world. This is the man I've been talking about, the one who comes after me, but is really ahead of me. Oh, I like that. I knew nothing about who he was, only this, that my task has been to get Israel ready to recognize him as the God revealer. That is why I came here baptizing with water, giving you a good bath and scrubbing sins from your life so you can get a fresh start with God. John clinched his witness with this. I watched the spirit like a dove flying down out of the sky, making himself at home in him. I repeat, I know nothing about him except this. The one who authorized me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the spirit come down and stay, this one will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what I saw happen. And I'm telling you, there's no question about it. This is the son of God. Now, Andrew and John were standing next to John the Baptist when Jesus walked by John the Baptist. Okay, so the Apostle John and the Apostle Andrew were together, okay, and they were standing next to John the Baptist because when you have all these Johns, it starts to get a, a little confusing. So you're already in John. Just do me a favor and just go down to the very next verse. Now, by the way, for those of you who are taking notes, if you want to know about the two Marys or, you know, how their cousins or relatives or whatever, if you want a, a scripture reference for that, go to Luke's Gospel, the first chapter, and you can look at verses 34 and 37. And that is your scripture reference for that. Because I don't ever like to say anything, you know, without having the word totally back it up. And if you look at Luke 1, verses 34 and 37, if you look at it, you will see that, let me see, I want you to see which one calls her a relative and which, oh, okay. If you look at it in the King James Version, not the New King James, but the regular King James Version, that's where they say that the two ladies, were Mary and Elizabeth, I said the two Elizabeths, forgive me, where Mary and Elizabeth are actually called cousins. There they call them cousins. The Message Bible calls them cousins. However, the Amplified Bible calls them relatives. So, I mean, I guess we can figure out which one we want to take either way. If they're cousins, they are relatives. So, <laughs> so that works when you think about it. So, so um, okay, so now we're looking at verses 35 and 36 in John's Gospel, the first chapter. And if we look at verse 35 in the Amplified is where I'm going to share it, it says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist again, was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked along and said, look, the Lamb of God. And the Message Bible pretty much says the same thing. The only difference is the Message Bible clarifies it a little bit more because it says, here he is, God's Passover Lamb, which is still, you know, making even more of a... Uh, you know, it's a little bit more distinguished, I think. They immediately, meaning these two disciples, John and Andrew, they immediately left the Baptist, John the Baptist side, and began to follow Jesus. Why do we know that? The very next verse tells us that. If you look at verse 37, 
In the first chapter of John, it says, the two disciples heard him say this. What was this? That look, the Lamb of God, that's what they heard. They then did what? They just went ahead and followed Jesus. If we look at it in the message, it says the two disciples heard him and went after Jesus. Jesus looked over his shoulder and said to them, what are you after? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And then we know because we talked about it earlier that they went and spent the whole afternoon actually fellowshipping with Jesus. Now, I don't imagine in any way, shape, or form that they were being fickle you know, or untrue toward their mentor, meaning to John the Baptist. They were not. Quite the opposite. John the Baptist had already expressly denied that Jesus was the Messiah, okay? Um, so, if anything, he was all for them going ahead following Jesus. And that we can definitely tell if you look, just back up a little bit. You're in the chapter, the first chapter of John, back up to the 19th verse. And we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. So see, you don't have to do a whole lot. You're just right there in that same, that same chapter, okay? Uh, verse 19 says, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed truthfully and did not deny that he was only a man, but acknowledged, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. And in the message it says, when Jews from Jerusalem sent a group of priests and officials to ask John who he was, he was completely honest. He didn't evade the question. He told the plain truth, I am not the Messiah. So, you know, he wasn't fronting and trying to act like he was more important or anything than he was. When people pressed John for an explanation, because, of course, you know, people will do that, just go right on down to verse 23. Same chapter, John 1 the 23rd verse in the Amplified says, he, meaning John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And the message says, and I like this expression, I'm thunder in the desert. I just like that. Make the road straight for God. I'm doing what the prophet Isaiah preached. So John had already said in the most plain and forthright terms that he was only the forerunner of the Messiah. He had come to prepare the way and to point people in the right direction. In fact, the very heart of John the Baptist's message was preparation for the Messiah who was coming speedily. He knew that. Andrew and John would therefore have been caught up in the thrill of messianic expectation because they were just with the sense of expectancy of who is this Messiah going to be? When is he going to come? I mean, come on, we can imagine that, right? Because they were waiting only for the right person to be identified. That is why, that's why as soon as they heard John the Baptist identify Christ as the Lamb of God, those two disciples instantly, wasn't even without a second thought, eagerly left John the Baptist to follow Christ. They did the right thing. The Baptist himself surely would have approved their choice because after all, as we just read, he was spending all of this time preparing people for the entrance of the Passover lamb. So the biblical account continues. You're still in John. Boy, you don't have to work at all. Okay, so just drop down to verse 38. We're gonna look at verses 38 and 39. And Jesus turned and saw them following him and asked them, what do you want? They answered, 
Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they went with him and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. The Message Bible says the two disciples heard him and went after Jesus. Jesus looked over his shoulder and asked them, what are you after? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He replied, come along and see for yourself. They came, saw where he was living, and ended up staying with him for the day. It was late afternoon when this happened. Now, obviously, we can relate to this and think about this, and we can imagine if Jesus came, okay, and wanted to spend time, are you kidding? We would drop anything, you know, just to be able to spend time with him. I mean, even when Apostle Price shows up, if he wants to spend time and talk to people, they don't just walk away. They want to take that time just to, you know, bask in that, that time, that fellowship. So, I mean, what they did made all the sense in the world. Now, it says that it was in the afternoon. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they met Christ. They followed him to a place that he was staying, and they spent the remainder of the day with him, which makes all the sense in the world. Since this was near John the Baptist in the wilderness, it was probably a rented house or possibly a room in a rustic inn. Now, the thing that I think is so significant about that, this just came to me. I think it's so interesting that with Jesus, what we can see through everything that we study, not just this series, but anywhere that you study, his message was more important to him than all the other things. And sometimes you will see ministries, and don't get me wrong, I think we all should have God's best. We should, that's important. We should live in the best, eat the best, all the rest of that. But the best for what is available to us at the time. I don't think, and this bothers me sometimes, when you will see certain ministries that are more about the stuff than the message. They want to see how much stuff they can have, how opulent they can live, and, you know, if people in their congregation are going home and having nothing to eat, oh, well, I'll pray for them. They don't really think about it much. That's not what the Jesus that we see. Okay, he was in possibly a rented room or a rustic inn. Now, he was not poverty-stricken or poor. This was the Son of God. And it doesn't say that he lived impoverished in this rented room or rustic inn. But his message was more important than how much stuff he had. And I think that's something to, to keep us grounded and centered into the fact that the message is always more important than the trappings of all the things that the world has to offer. And I really, really, that, that just came to me with that. I really like that. So these two disciples were privileged to spend the afternoon and evening in private fellowship with Jesus. And they left convinced that they found the true Messiah. They met, became acquainted, and began to be taught by Jesus that very day. Therefore, Andrew and John became Jesus's first disciples. Now, we're seeing a pattern when it comes to Jesus. He makes every moment count. He always, if you notice, is teaching. Every moment is a teachable moment with him. And that, to me, is so encouraging because all of us should think the same way. I mean, especially if you're dealing with a younger person or you're mentoring a child, or it doesn't have to be a child, because, I mean, a child for us could be, <laughs> at my age, a person could be 40 as a child. But, I mean, you know, mentoring someone younger, okay, and especially if it's a child. We need to make every moment that we have with them count. 
and make it teachable. Because when you do that, you will find that the person you are mentoring or guiding will do that same thing, which means they spend less time picking up the phone, gossiping on what so-and-so-and-so is doing this, and blah, 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 blah. They won't find so much time that they've got to sit to see how many likes they have on Facebook. They will put social media in its proper place. And instead of it ruling them, they rule over it. And they'll get the point. But they get that from what they learn. Children always learn what they live. So if we make every moment a teachable moment, even sometimes when things are uncomfortable, because you know, you have to, you know, sometimes things can be a little uncomfortable, but you can make it teachable. It doesn't always have to be a horrible thing with intense fellowship. It can be undergirded with love, but make it a teachable moment, because we see that that's exactly what Jesus did. He just met these people, but that's exactly what he did with them. So I really like that. Now notice the first thing that Andrew did. He went and found his brother Simon. And we know that because if we look in the same chapter, all you have to do is just go right on down to verse 41 of John's Gospel, chapter number one. And I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. It says, he first looked for and found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. In the Message Bible, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John's witness and followed Jesus. The first thing he did after finding where Jesus lived was find his own brother Simon, telling him, we found the Messiah, that is Christ. He immediately led him to Jesus. Jesus took one look at him and said, you're John's son, Simon. From now on, your name is Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. Okay, so that gave us a little bit more information and where that whole thing of rock started or initiated. It actually was when he first met him. He considered the news, this is Andrew, considered the news too good to keep it to himself. That's what I thought was just so wonderful, too. Meaning, we will go and tell people about the best cheeseburger in Manhattan. We will definitely go and tell them the best place you can go and get a haircut where they just do it just perfectly and you know all is well. But we won't even think about telling anybody about the Jesus that saved us or the God we serve. Like that's too complicated, but we'd much rather tell them about cheeseburgers. I think we can learn a little bit something from Andrew. I really, really do. Hmm. Andrew did consider the news too good to keep for himself, so much so that he went and found the one person in the world whom he loved most, whom he most wanted to know Jesus, and he led him to Christ. Now check this out. How did he lead him to Christ? He just brought him to him. He didn't have to go through Oh, I'm so nervous. I don't really want to say anything. I don't know. You know, he didn't go through all that. All he did was say, Peter, come meet the Messiah. So-and-so, come to church. Okay, let the church, let the people teaching do the job for you. That's all you have to do. It could be anybody. It doesn't have to, I mean, oh, we're going to get into that later on. But anyway, I just wanted you to see that because it's just that simple. That's exactly what he did. He went and led him to Christ. I thought that that was just Wonderful. Now we have loved ones, see that's the point. And it's, he's it's such a perfect example of what we should be doing today because think about it. 
We have loved ones and we have people that we care about whom we do want to know about Jesus. We can learn from Andrew and find them and just lead them to Christ. They didn't say you had to do a whole lot. You don't have to get up and teach a sermon. You just have to lead them to Christ. And that, I got to tell you something. Why did these things go? My dad went to be with the Lord on September 11th, uh, 2001. And I, I chuckle because I actually said, boy, you just wanted to go out with a bang where everybody remembered the date okay, that you were going to transition. So you made sure you did it on a day that's in history, okay? Uh, and I really, you know, to a certain degree, I just, I just chuckle because that just is so my father. But anyway, the thing is, with him, I was not, I knew that he probably studied scripture more than just about anybody I knew. And I knew that he had a very sensitive nature when it came to things of God. And I knew that he was very spiritual minded because I grew up in his, I knew how he was. But I was not, and this is me as an adult, okay? I was not 100% sure that he had accepted Christ based upon Romans 10, 9, and 10. I, I'm just being, I really was not. And I wasn't a counselor at the time, I, you know, because I mean, I had just barely made it through myself because I thought I was born again all this time and found out I wasn't. So it wasn't until 1984, you've heard my story 50 million times, that I went to a crusade and that's when I was born again. Well, with my dad, this was only, I was still a baby Christian, but thank God I had the, the I guess the prayers of everybody who loved me that gave me the unction to make sure I brought my dad to church. And I brought him to church, and the church that we were going to at the time, at the end of the service, not only did they ask people who wanted to be born again, they went ahead and said the salvation prayer right then and there. So if the person accepted Jesus, they didn't have to go through, let's lift the hand and come down. They did it right then and there, and my father did it. That, I cannot tell you, with the tears streaming down his face, for me, it gave me the solace of knowing I know he's born again. So I say that to you, because again, I can't talk about you, but I can talk about me. It's something when you lose people, well, it's not losing, we don't lose them, but when they transition, it is one thing to know that they are resting in the arms of Jesus. It's another thing when you really don't have a clue. But it only takes something simple like saying, come on, come to church with me. It's not that difficult. And it makes such a difference. So on September 11th, I could tease my dad because I'm like, yeah, okay, you picked this day to transition, but I know where you are. And it just makes such a difference. So anyway, I don't know who that was for, but whatever. It <laughs> wasn't in my notes, but it's out there now. <laughs> So as we saw earlier, Peter and Andrew, they actually went back to Capernaum and continued their fishing career after their initial meeting with Christ. Now see, this isn't in my notes either, but this is important because sometimes people get so spiritually minded that they're no earthly good. In other words, oh yes, I had an encounter with the Lord, I'm saved. So, you know, I don't have to really keep looking for a job because I guess the Lord is just going to provide for me. You happy? I know it sounds crazy, but there are people who believe that. Oh, no, 
no, no, no, no, no. Okay, man doesn't work, man doesn't eat, so you better continue on with whatever it is that you need to do, okay? And the Lord will help you, but he didn't say just go sit home and just crack open some bonbons and just wait for manna to fall out of the sky. I mean, it doesn't quite work like that. So they met Jesus in person, but they sure went back to their jobs, okay, because they knew that they needed to do that. They needed to do that. Now, it was at a later time, perhaps months later, that Jesus came to Galilee to minister. He had begun his ministry in and around Jerusalem, where he cleansed the temple and stirred the hostility of the religious leaders. And we know about that because we talked about that before. But then he returned to Galilee to preach and heal, and he eventually came to Capernaum. There he encountered the four brothers again while they were fishing. This is the account where Jesus tells them how to follow him, and he will make them fishers of men. Now you actually have to change where you are and go to Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter. So if we look at Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter, we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. And if I share it with you out of the Amplified, which has the qualifiers, it says, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he noticed two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, here's the qualifier, as my disciples, accepting me as your master and teacher and walking the same path of life that I walk. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him, becoming his disciples, believing and trusting in him, and following his example. And going on further from there, he noticed two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them to follow him as his disciples. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him, becoming his disciples, believing and trusting in him and following his example. Now, I like this translation because notice it says, to be a disciple of Jesus, it's a little bit more than just saying, yes, I'm born again. Yes, you know, I accepted the Lord. It's a little bit more than that. It means that you have to believe and trust in him, and you have to follow his example. That we have to be, we know that we cannot be perfect as he was, but we can certainly try, and we can certainly follow his example. We don't have any excuse not to do that. But anyway. If you look at it in the message, it says, walking along the beach of Lake Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, later called Peter, and Andrew. They were fishing, throwing their nets into the lake. It was their regular work. Jesus said to them, come with me. I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask questions, but simply dropped their nets and followed. A short distance down the beach, they came upon a pair of brothers, James and John, Zebedee's sons. These two were sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their fishnets. Jesus made the same offer to them, and they were just as quick to follow, abandoning boat and father. In other words, they knew what they needed to do, and they got to it. This is where they left fishing for a more permanent, full-time discipleship. Now, a parallel account of this account is actually recorded in Luke's Gospel, so I need you to turn there. Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. 
and I'm going to share this with you out of the New Living Translation. So let me know when you're there by saying amen. Okay. Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished, he said to Simon, now, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, only Simon, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to, te to tear. A shout for help brought their partners to the other boat, from the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, doesn't that sound like it should be something that we should be doing? I mean, when you think about it, I mean, why not? But in Luke's account, now this is interesting. In Luke's account, Andrew's name is not mentioned. Now, we know he was there and was included because Matthew's record makes that clear. But Andrew was so much in the background that Luke doesn't even mention his name. Again, he was the kind of person who seldom came to the forefront. He remained somewhat hidden. He was certainly part of the group, and he must have followed Christ as eagerly and as quickly as the others, but he played a quiet, unsung role in obscurity. He lived his whole life in the shadow of Peter, and he apparently accepted that role. This was the very thing that made him so useful. His willingness to be a supporting actor often gave him insights into things the other disciples had trouble grasping. You know, like you will hear people always jest and say, oh, you have to watch those quiet ones. Because sometimes those who are sitting quiet, they are observing and they are learning and they are just being able to, like a sponge, just gather wisdom and things around them that other people who are just all over the place totally miss. This was the kind of person that Andrew was. So whenever he does come to the forefront, the thing that shines is his uncanny ability to see immense value in small and modest things. When it came to dealing with people, for example, Andrew fully appreciated the value of a single soul. He was known for bringing individuals, not crowds, to Jesus. Almost every time we see him in the gospel accounts, he is bringing someone to Jesus. Remember that his first act after discovering Christ was to go and get Peter. I mean, that's the first thing that he actually did. Now, that incident set the tone for Andrew's style of ministry. At the feeding of the 5,000, for example, it was Andrew who brought the boy with the loaves and fishes to Christ, okay? 
All of the other disciples were at a loss to know how to obtain food for the multitude. It was Andrew who took the young boy to Jesus. And you will find that, because we're going to read it a little bit later, but if you're taking notes, you can find that in John's Gospel, the sixth chapter and the ninth verse. Now I want you to see something. So turn with me to John, <clears throat> but you're going to turn to John's Gospel, the 12th chapter. And we're going to look at verses 20 and 22. And starting with verse 20, in chapter 12 of John, it says, and I'm going to share it with you first out of the New King James Version. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, I like this because if we look at it in the Living Bible, so it says this, some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to attend the Passover. See, this is why I like different translations. Over here, it just says the feast. The feast of what? Okay, whereas the Living Bible is telling us specifically it's the Passover. So we now have identified what the feast was, which gives us a whole different feel for this particular time frame. So again, why we use different translations. So anyway, Passover paid during the time to attend Passover. And they paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, and said to him, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Now among those, this is the Amplified Classic Edition, it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they made this request, we desire to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip together went and told Jesus. Now, <clears throat> these were probably Gentiles who knew of Jesus' reputation, and they wanted to meet him, okay? Notice, they came to Philip first who then went to who? He went to Andrew, and they both told Jesus. Now, it is significant that these men approached Philip, and Philip took the men to Andrew and let Andrew introduce them to the master. Why didn't Philip just take them to Jesus himself? That's the question. Now, perhaps he's, he was naturally timid, you know, and nervous or something. Or maybe he wasn't confident enough in his own relationship with Christ. Maybe Philip just became flustered and confused about proper protocol. Or it's possible that Philip was not sure that Jesus would want to see them. In any case, Philip knew that Andrew could take individuals to Christ. Why did he know that? Because that was Andrew's M.O. That's what he was doing all the time. So he knew, well, I'll take him to him. You know, that'll work. Now, Andrew, he wasn't confused when someone wanted to see Jesus. He, he wasn't concerned about all that. He simply brought them to him. He understood that Jesus would want to meet anyone who wanted to meet him. How could he be so sure? Turn to John and look at the sixth chapter, verse 37. John 6, 37, in the New King James Version says, and this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. The Living Bible says, but some will come to me, 
those the Father has given me, and I will never, never reject them. And the Amplified Classic, which gives us the qualifier, says, all whom my Father gives, here's the qualifier, entrusts to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will most certainly not cast out. Here's the qualifier. I will never, no, never reject one of them who comes to me. So obviously, Andrew knew this about him, which means Andrew knew him. Okay. Andrew was obviously poised and comfortable introducing people to Christ because he did it so often. We can think about that in just the natural daily things that we do. If a person, say for instance, a person has their first baby and they bring that baby home. Oh, I love these commercials. You know that Love's commercial where they show you the mother who brings the first baby home and they leave it with the babysitter and, or goes out, forget the babysitter, goes out and she's taking everything. Wipes, thermometers, I mean, you know, like the whole house just to go on a little walk with the baby. And then the second child comes and she's just out the door, okay, with her keys and leaves everything else because there's a lot that she learned, okay, through the process. Well, here is the thing. Andrew was comfortable because he did it often. So he knew what he was doing. He didn't have to be all concerned about it. So the more that we share Jesus with people, we will be comfortable too. We won't be all concerned about it because we do it all the time. Invite somebody, see what happens. Or you can invite the next person. And then before you know it, it just becomes all hat to you. You can just go ahead and do it. And we can learn that from Andrew. And I'm gonna, I hope I get to it tonight. I wanna show you a connection, it's gonna make you go, wow. It's really, when I saw this, I had to just pause. So I hope I get to it tonight. If I don't, I'm gonna to get to it next week. Oh, you've gotta hear it, it's so good. But anyway, okay, back to this. <clears throat> In the first chapter of John, he brought Peter to Jesus, as we know, making him, this is what it actually made Andrew. He became the first home missionary. Now, he's bringing some Greeks to Christ, making him the first foreign missionary. So he's really also like the first missionary that we know of in scripture. Now here's a key point. The most effective and important aspects of evangelism, of evangelism, can you talk, usually takes place on an individual, personal level. Most people do not come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. They come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. Okay, now follow me on this. The local church should foster an evangel, they should foster an evan evangel, why can't I say this? No, it's right there. Evangelistic, wow, environment. When they do, you'll see people coming to Christ on a regular basis because they've kind of set the stage for that. They've created that kind of environment. Now let me be perfectly clear. Quite often, people are converted in a direct response to a message they heard in church, true, but it is usually owing to the influence of an individual who encouraged the person and brought him to church in the first place. Now, I just shared that with you when it came to my dad, okay? Yes, the word that he heard while he was there, of course, that made a big difference. 
okay, for him to go ahead and say that salvation prayer. But how did he get to church in the first place? I invited him. So it still goes back to that individual who then invites a person to come to church to hear the message. That's the key. We have to bring them, okay? So I thought that that was really good. So both Andrew and his brother Peter had evangelistic, I'm gonna go home and practice this word. <laughs> evangelistic, I don't know why, it's like I'm looking at it, it just doesn't seem like how it sounds, but anyway. Andrew and his brother Peter had evangelistic hearts, but their methods were dramatically different, okay? Peter preached at Pentecost, and 3,000 people were added to the church. That's a lot. Nothing in scripture indicates that Andrew ever preached to a crowd or stirred masses of people at all. But remember that it was he who brought Peter to Christ. In the sovereign providence of God, Andrew's act of faithfulness in bringing his own brother to Christ was the individual act that led to the conversion of the man who would preach that great sermon at Pentecost. So do you see the connection? Okay, no, he didn't preach at Pentecost and lead those 3,000, but he's connected to it because he brought Peter to meet Christ in the first place. All of the fruit of Peter's ministry, Peter the Rock, all of the fruit of that ministry is ultimately also the fruit of Andrew's faithful individual witness. One of the things that Stan and I would always do with our children, when we were traveling along with Apostle Price on these crusades, because we were leaving children at home, and <laughs> I mean, I had kids at three years old, they were babies at home, but I set them down and I let them know that they were a part of what we were doing. We were going in service of the Lord, but they were serving too, because I needed them to be home. I needed them to be obedient. I needed them to make sure they were doing their homework, doing their chores, taking care of everything. And I wanted them to know, yes, we're on the front line, going, representing our family, being able to help the brethren with these crusades, but you're right there with us, because you happen to be home doing what you're supposed to be doing. That is so important. You know, sometimes women, we have, we are a special breed, but sometimes, you know, you may have this husband who's so wonderful and so successful and everybody knows his name and knows what he's done and you're some afterthought like Andrew that nobody ever heard of or seen, but that's when we can look at the Proverbs 31 woman because she was the one who had everything done and was taking care of the household, taking care of everything so that man could go out at the gates, okay, and everybody could see him. But it was her behind him that was getting it all done. And that's, to me, how we have to look at it. We may be home sometimes watching the spoil and they may be out there doing whatever, but we are equal in importance because what we are doing is just as important as what they are doing. And what Peter did, if it wouldn't, I mean, Andrew did, if it wouldn't have been for Andrew, there would have never been all of that that Peter did. And this is the thing, God often works that way. Few have ever heard of Edward Kimball. Does everybody know who Edward Kimball is? <laughs> Some people look at him and be like, who is he, <laughs> okay? His name is just a footnote 
in the annals of church history. But he was the Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to Christ. Now, some of you may be like, who is D.L. Moody? T.L. Moody. He went one afternoon to the Boston shoe store where the 19-year-old Moody was working. And he cornered him in the stockroom, actually. But when he did that, he introduced him to Christ. Now, Kimball was the antithesis, or direct opposite, of a bold evangelist, okay? He was a timid, soft-spoken man. He went to that shoe shop frightened, trembling, and unsure of whether he had enough courage to even confront this young man with the gospel. At the time, Moody was crude and obviously illiterate, but the thought of speaking to him about Christ had Kimball trembling in his boots. Moody had begun attending Kimball's Sunday school class because actually Kimball had a Sunday school class of teenage young men. And, you know, he literally had a heart for wanting to make sure that these young men knew about Jesus and could receive Christ. And he was concerned about Moody. That's why he actually went on and went after him. It was obvious that Moody was totally <laughs> untaught. Oh, I said that. He was totally untaught, and he didn't know anything, really. He was completely ignorant when it came to the Bible. So Kimball made the decision to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. He started downtown to the shoe store where the young man worked. And when he was nearly there, this is great, he was battling, like so many of us do, the thoughts, ideas, and suggestions of the enemy. So much so that he passed the store without even realizing where he was going. When he realized what he did, he decided to get to the store and just get it over with. He just wanted to just tell him about this gospel. Let me just get this over with. And some of us have felt that way sometimes. Kimball found Moody working in the stockroom in the store, wrapping and shelving some shoes. Kimball doesn't remember exactly even what he said. He just remembers sharing Christ's and his love, meaning the love of Jesus. That was all that he remembers that he did. He admitted it was a weak appeal. It wasn't really attractive. It was kind of ragged, but that's what he did. But Moody, then and there, gave his heart to Christ. Now, of course, I have to finish, but we're going <laughs> to hear about D.L. Moody, and I'm going to share the connection of what Kimball did and the difference it made in a person that you have heard of and known in this lifetime. So we're going to do that next week. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 945 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.